Amen. Amen. You may be seated. While you're being seated, if you have a little one that would like to be a part of Children's Church, Miss Kim is at her post and back from her quarantine and ready to serve. Uh, and so we're grateful for her. And a special word of thanks to uh, Micah two Sundays ago for stepping in and kind of flowing the service. And then last Sunday, JB uh, covered for us as Micah was serving out his quarantine as well. Uh, and so we're thankful for um, those men stepping in and leading along the way. And the two guys who came, Brother Chris Crane and Kevin Blackwell, who owed me favors, and I called them in. So I'm thankful for those brothers. Would you take out your Bible and turn with me to 1 John? 1 John. We've been walking through the book of 1 John together, and we are now in uh, 1 John chapter 3. We're in the third chapter, about midway. We'll start in verse 11 this morning, we were walking through this letter of John the Apostle, probably the last living apostle nearing the end of his life, writing to the church, writing to the church that he loves, that he cares about, that he desires to see well. He's writing to them after somewhat of a schism has taken place in the church. There's been a group who, who came in and began to teach a different gospel. They began to teach that Jesus was not really God in the flesh or that sin's really not that big a deal. They began to teach things that were opposite of what the apostles had taught and planted the church on. And so then they leave the church. You can see this in 1 John chapter 2, about verse 19. They went out from them and did not return. And so the church is hurting. They're fragile. They've had a, a debate. They've had a fight. Some, some have left. And so the church is in a hard place. And so John writes to them out of affection and out of love. And one of the main things that John is addressing is... They are trying to figure out who real Christians are. They're trying to determine, what is a real Christian? What does it really look like? This group came in, and, and they said something different, and then they left, and, and they told us we weren't right. And, and so what does it look like? Well, in the first part of chapter 3, verses 1 through 10, he tells us that a, a real Christian, a true Christian, will be seen in the way that they go after righteousness and flee from sin, that they will hold to the gospel. But then if you look in your Bible there in verse 10, he kind of finishes that thought by adding a new thought. He says in verse 10, if you have your Bible open, he writes these words. He says, by this it is evident who are the children of God, who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God. Now that's him summing up verses 1 through 9. But then he adds this last part. He says, nor is the one who does not love his brother, you see that sentence there, that is what we would call a transition, a hanging sentence, because he's about to dive into, in verse 11, this idea of loving the brotherhood. One of the things that we do in school to determine whether or not we've reached a level of knowledge is we take a test. When we study, when we've been taught something, we have a test. It determines whether or not we have accomplished or checked off the mark. Well, what John will do in verses 11 through 18 is he will give us the test of love. He will say, here's how you can tell if you're really a believer, if you're passionate about the Lord, if you've come into the kingdom, if you, as John 3 would say, been born again, one of the major ways you'll be able to see this in your life and in those around you is whether or not you understand Christian love. If you pass the test... Of love. That's what John will do in the next few verses. Join me in verse 11. Let me read through verse 18 to show what I mean. For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. We should not be like Cain, who was of evil one and murdered his brother. 
And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brothers righteous. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. We know that we have passed out of death and into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love, whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. Verse 16. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Now, listen to this summary sentence in verse 18. Little children... Let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. Let's pray together. Father, this morning, we as the church uh, are constantly told what love is from the world. We are given all kind of definitions of love. And Father, I pray this morning you would remind us, those who are Christians, those who follow Christ, those who know Jesus as Savior and Lord, I pray you'd remind us this morning what the true definition of love is. What it looks like to be a people who love you and love one another. Father, remind us again, not of the, the fake and phony and feeble definitions of love, but the true love that is seen in Christ. Father, I pray this morning if there's one here who, who they don't know you, they've not been transformed by your love. Maybe they're watching online at home and, and they're questioning and asking and, and they don't know that they've experienced your transforming love. I pray today. Lord, they would hear the truth of your word, and by the power of your spirit and conviction of sin, they would cry out to you, and you would lavish your love upon them. Father, we're grateful this morning that you love us. You love us, Father. We know you love us. And so, Lord, remind us again what love looks like in the church. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. At the first part of chapter 3, he tells us that the marks of a true Christian are righteousness, and running from sin. But now he will tell us in verses 11 through 18 that it's not just our ethics that have to be right, excuse me, our beliefs that have to be right. It's also our ethics. Our behavior has to match. You can claim to be a Christian, but if you don't act like one, there's something missing. There's a disconnect in what you're saying versus what you're doing. And so in verses 11 through 18, he now describes for us this idea of this is what love looks like in the life of the believer and in the church. This is the conviction of love. And so I want to give you three truths from the text this morning, three tests, if you will, that we can examine our lives and see if we're in step with Jesus, if we're walking rightly in the gospel. The test of love, truth number one, for the Christian, love is to be our calling. It is to be our calling. It is to be the very nature of who we are. It is to be the essence of our action. It is to be everything that we are about. Love is to be the centerpiece of all of our thoughts and words and actions and deeds and decisions. Love is our calling. It is our duty as a believer. Look with me at verse 11. Let me show you what I mean for this message you, that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. Now, John has done this a couple times in this letter. He says the message from the beginning. He uses that phrase to take the church back to their roots. Remember, they're fragile. 
They're frail. They just had a serious argument with those who've come in and tried to damage the gospel. And so they find themselves in a very feeble place. And so where do Christians go when we find ourselves in a feeble place? We go back to the truth of Christ. We go back to the gospel of Jesus. We go back to the cross in which we found our salvation. We go back to the old message, for God so loved the world that he sent his only son, that whosoever believe in him will not perish but have everlasting life. We go back to that Bible school song, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. We go back to the message. And so what does John do? He takes them back to the message. He says, you've heard this from the beginning. Now, what does he mean by that? He means simply this, from the very beginning of the Christian message, Jesus himself proclaimed that the Christian message is love. It is love of God for us, and it is love of ourselves to each other. And then he says, but it's also been the very beginning of what we told you. The apostles planted the church on the love of God. They planted the church on the gospel message of love. Here is the message that they would have heard. They would have heard that Jesus is God in the flesh. They would have heard that God loved them so much that he took on flesh and that he became one of them, born in a manger, born in a nativity, that he would raise himself or he would grow up in human flesh as one of us, knowing us well. Hebrews would say he would be our perfect high priest that knows everything we deal with. He would walk this earth perfectly. He would show the love of God in his actions and in his teaching. And then he would go to the cross. He would go to the cross and have every one of our sins laid on his shoulders, every one of our failings, every one of our departures from the righteousness of God. Every reason that we've been separated from God would be laid on his shoulders. This is love that he would become the curse for us. This is love that he would go to the cross and allow nails to be driven through his divine hands and thorns crushed on his head and blood poured down from the cross. This is love that when we mocked him and spit on him, he would yell from the cross, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Brothers and sisters, it was not nails that held Jesus to the cross, but love. It was not um, a tomb that held Jesus in death but love. And it was not any kind of mystical power that pulled him from the grave. It was love. Love is the reason why God died. Love is the reason why Christ came. Love is the reason why we have salvation. Love is the message of the gospel. Love is the centerpiece of the church. When you search the scripture, when you read the text, when you survey the story of God, you will dig deep and you will find a God who loves you. He loves you. And if, brothers and sisters, anywhere in your theology you find a God that does not love you, then dig again because you're not reading the same Bible I'm reading. You will find a God who loves you. He loves you in such a way that he would die for you, that he would claim you, that he would redeem you, that he would purchase you, that he would adopt you, and that he would call you his son and daughter. The king of kings and the Lord of lords would invite you into his home. And here's the wonderful truth of it. We didn't deserve it. We could not merit it. We could not earn it. And if you were throwing a party, you wouldn't pick a bunch of sinners either. But God did because he loves us. And so what does John do? John takes them back to their roots. He says, this is love. Now notice what it says in the text. For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning. From the very beginning, you've heard the message that God loves you. That Christ came to die for you. But notice how he connects it to us now. So, Okay, I I know the story of Jesus 2,000 years ago. I know that he loved me. I, I understand about his death. What does that matter today, pastor? How does that affect me today? Notice the next part of the sentence after the comma. It says that we should love one Another, you see that word there that we should love in the Greek, that is a present tense active verb. What does that mean? That means it's still going. 
It's ongoing. That we should constantly be displaying the love that we've experienced in Christ. If you've met Christ, it ought to be bubbling out of you in every direction. The love of Christ invades your heart, changes your life, and it ought to be seen in the way in which you live. It ought to be seen in your marriage, in your parenting, in your neighborhood, and it especially ought to be seen in the church, in the way you love the family of God. And so what does he say? From the very beginning, love has been the centerpiece of the church. From the very beginning, this has been The message, Jesus is nearing his death in John 15. In fact, in John 13, Judas has left the room and he begins his final discourse with his disciples. In John 14, he will tell them of heaven and the Holy Spirit. In John 15, he will tell them that if they abide in him, they will bear much fruit. In John 17, he will pray for their unity. But in John 13, as he begins his discourse, this is what Jesus says to the disciples. Remember now, this is his dying speech, the most important words he will speak. Notice what he says. This is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone would lay his life down for a friend. Listen to what Jesus does. Jesus says, listen, I'm about to go die for you and not just a physical death. I'm about to experience the wrath of God on sin so that you may have eternal life. This is what I'm going to do for you. And now he looks at us and says, and you act the same way. Now listen, get this now, we stare at Jesus and admire him and worship him and honor him, but we are supposed to stare at Jesus and copy him. We are to be like him. We are to behave like him. Why? Because the very conviction and the calling of the Christian is love. This is the centerpiece of the gospel. Our God is a loving God, and we should love as well. Now, What does this mean? The Bible tells us a lot about love. It tells me that I am to love my spouse and my children. It tells me I'm to love my enemy. It tells me I'm to love the world and take the message of the gospel. There are many places in the scripture where we are called to love. But there is a special calling through the New Testament that's very clear that in the family of God, there is to be a special calling of love. There is to be a bond of love that unites us together that the world sees as peculiar and that we see as necessary in every area of our life. There is to be a bond in the love of the church. You know what this means. Listen now. This means this. Somewhere right now in the Bronx of New York, there is someone of a different ethnicity than me. They like different food than me. They listen to different music than me. They probably vote for different candidates than I do. They have a different education background. They have a different economic background. They have a different common language than I might have. You ever been to the Bronx in New York? It's a whole different language there. They they are going to behave differently than me. We probably don't have the same radio stations. We probably don't have the same clothes. We probably don't watch the same movies. In fact, if you were to find this person on the backside of the Bronx that looks completely different than me, you're going to put us side by side go, they have nothing in common. But listen now, listen and hear me. If they are a child of the king, then they are my family. And we have more in common than the atheist down the street that looks just like me. Because we are bonded in the family of Christ. And let me climb on my soapbox for a moment. The world is trying to put us into categories in every direction. And the only category the scripture puts us in is the family of God. The family of God. 
So we must swallow our pride and stop categorizing everyone and saying to ourselves, if they're a child of the king, then I am to love them. And they are to love me. And we are bound together. This is our calling. This is our conviction. This is who we are. Jesus says it this way again in John 13. He says, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. Notice this last sentence. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. This is the picture, the test of the Christian. Truth number two from the text, the second part of the exam. For the Christian, love is not only our calling, it is to be our conviction. Now, what I mean by that is simply this. In the first part, Jesus says, if you love me, if you know me, you'll know the message of the gospel and it will be seen. You'll be changed. But then he goes a step further now and he gives us an example of how this looks compared to the world. He's going to use Cain as the prototype of the world. And here's what he's going to say. Your default should be a person who loves people. Your conviction should be that in every situation, love is your answer. You are a person who flows with love. Notice what I mean. It gets a little bit heavy here, so pay attention with me. Look at verse 12. You should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one, and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. We know that you have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life. Now, if you're reading that closely, you realize, boy, John took a leap there, didn't he? He went from we should love one another to don't murder people. Now, that seems like a pretty far leap. I assume that I'm sitting in a room with a group of people that has never actually murdered, right? They've taken a life in vengeance or in anger, right? And so it seems like John is, is making a big leap here and, hey, John, we got, we're working on love. We're pretty far from murder. Like, that doesn't seem normal. And he's using Cain. In Genesis chapter 4, you'll read the story of Cain and Abel, the first two sons born into the new world that God had created. Adam and Eve had had them, and Cain kills Abel. We don't know a lot about why Cain killed Abel. We see clues through Scripture like here and and later in the book of Hebrews and and further in the writings of Paul. And, And what we understand is simply this. Abel was righteous, Abel was honoring God, and Cain was jealous. Cain hated Abel for his righteousness, and so that anger welled up in him, and he took his brother's life. In Genesis chapter 4, you'll find the recording of the first murder ever created in the world, or ever happening in the world. And so what does John do here? Look at the text, let me show you what he's trying to do. He's trying to show us two examples. He's trying to say to us that the example of the world is hatred. That you know the world because they hate. The world hates. And what is hatred? Hatred is removing people who get in your way. Hatred is moving people who cause you to stop your goals or your way. Hatred boils out of selfishness. I want my way. I want my belongings. I want my advancement. I want my economics. And when you have what I want or you're in my way or you do things that I don't like that's hindering me, I hate you. That's what he would say. And so he's using Cain as the prototype to sum up the world. Notice this is not a new teaching. 
Jesus would give us the same teaching in Matthew, in the Sermon on the Mount. Listen to the words of Jesus in Matthew chapter 3, verse 21 through 28. You say this, excuse me, that should be Matthew chapter 5. You have heard it said that those of old you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who's angry with his brother is liable to judgment. Jesus takes murder and says, wait a minute. Murder is the physical act of what you've already done in your heart. Murder is just the carrying out of the sin that you're carrying within. And so what does John do in 1 John? He says simply this, here's what hate looks like. Hatred is a desire to get rid of someone. It is a desire to murder someone, to move them out of your way. And if you have hatred in your heart, here's the point that he's making, stay with me. If you find yourself hating people, you're in the family of Cain. And Cain's of the devil. Listen now, listen to the words of the scripture. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one. He says, if your default pattern is to hate, it is to be angry with those that are causing you strife or against you, and particularly anyone in the church family, then just maybe, just maybe you've not been transformed by the gospel because hate is the reaction of the world. Hate is the reaction of the evil one. Hate is in the family of Cain, not Abel. So he says, wait a minute. The conviction of the believer should not be hate. That should not be our default setting. In fact, look at verse 14 and 15. He takes it so seriously. He says in verse 14, these words, we know that we have passed out of death into life because we love one another. Whoever does not abide in, whoever does not love abides in death. Now the Bible gives us lots of contrast about our salvation. The blind see, the lame walk. He tells us that the, the deaf hear. We transferred from darkness into light. But the most striking of these contrasts that we get in the Bible is that when you are saved, you move from death to life. You move from the grave that's destined for hell, separated from God, to an eternal kingdom and a citizen of heaven and a seat saved in glory. You move into life that even now the physical grave of this world will not separate you from the love of God when you come to Christ. You go from death to life. Amen? And he says, how do you know if somebody's going from death to life? You can see it in how they love. Notice the words that he uses there in verse 14. If you don't love, you are still dead. John says, here's the test for salvation. How's the conviction of your love? How do you respond to people? How do you care about, especially in the church, the family of God? How, how do you care about people? How do, how do you think about people? What is, your, what is your initial reaction to others? If it's hatred, if it's selfishness, if it's being bothered, then just maybe you're not part of the family. Because the family default is love. The family default is care. The family default is tenderness. He says if you abide in love, then possibly you, or excuse me, if you abide in hate, then possibly you may not even be a true believer. You're aligning wrong. We see this in the first church. If you read Acts chapter 2, verse 42 and 43, it says that they desired to be together. They shared all that they had. 
They committed themselves to the apostles' teaching and to prayer and to selling their goods and sharing one another. There was a, a love meal when they gathered together. They shared their life because they loved one another. Why? Because they knew they had passed from death to life and now they were an eternal family. And they cared about one another. They, they had tenderness for one another. And so he says, this is the conviction. The heart default of the believer is to love. And then he gives us final proof, verse 13. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. Again, he's going to this similarity between Cain and Jesus. And he says, if, if you find yourself that the world is pleased with you, they're applauding you, they're, they're okay with you, then maybe you're living by their system of selfishness and hate and judgment and writing people off and worried about your own red wagon and not caring about others. But if you find yourself being tender towards people and caring for people and loving the church and loving the Lord and living by the standards of the kingdom of love, then and the world is going to turn against you. And you can know you've passed from death into life when the world turns against you. Listen now, if your standards match the standards of the world and they have no problem with you, then just maybe you haven't passed the test. Just maybe. You haven't been transferred from death to life because here's what transfer looks like. Transfer looks like this. You've come to the knowledge of Jesus Christ, verse 11, You've heard the message of old. You've experienced the love of Christ. You know the gospel has changed you. And because the gospel has changed you, you live differently. You invade the church. You invade others. And your life is bubbling over with the love of the gospel. And you live differently. And the righteousness with which you live is like Abel. It stands out like a sore thumb. And it makes Cain mad. It makes the world mad. Because you're living differently. Let me give you a third test from the text on love, and we'll finish with this. And that's simply this. For the Christian, love is our custom. Now, what do I mean by this? Because here's what John will do for us. I'm thankful what John will do. John will help us understand, okay, I know the message, verse 11. I know the gospel. I know Jesus loves me. I've been saved. I've been transformed. I know that I'm supposed to love people. Verses 11, or excuse me, verse 12 there. Uh, I know that I'm supposed to love people. I know I'm supposed to care about people. I, I know I'm not supposed to have a default setting of hate. But here's the question. Here's the real question. What do I do? What does love look like? I mean, how do I love people like I'm supposed to? What does Christian love look like? What's the custom how do we behave? What's our, what's our actions? What, what is the, the, the type of love that I am to display? All, all of you who have experienced relationships in dating or in marriage, and especially I'm speaking now to the men, and I'm trying to help you ladies. So listen carefully. Let me give you some godly advice. Sometimes we're dumb. We're hard-headed. We, we're thick-headed. And so you might say something, but you mean something else, and we don't always get that. We, we didn't always translate. That takes years of understanding. And so what we often need, ladies, and, I, and I'm being totally honest here, what we often need is, please tell me what you want. Please tell me what you mean. Please, thank you, brother. <laughs> this is the, the idea. And, and, the, and the thing about it is, in our Christian life, we wrestle with the same thing. Lord, what do you mean? 
Lord, what does this mean? What do you want, Lord? Help me understand. I want to do right. I, I want to love you like I'm supposed to. I, I want to go after you. I know you died for me. I know you've changed me. I know I've transferred from death to life. But Lord, what am I supposed to do on Monday? What does it look like on Tuesday afternoon? Help me, Lord, understand what the customs are. What's the, what's the behavior of the Christian? Look with me now and let me show you because he gives it to us. He defines it for us. Verse 16 through 18, he says these words. By this we know love, that, we lay down his, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. He gives us the definition. Here's what love looks like. Now, what he does is he starts with Christ, where all of us should start. And he gives us the extreme example of love. And the extreme example of love, the definition of love, the very standard of love, is God sent his son to die for us. That is the definition of love. Love is Jesus on the cross. If you have a definition of love that does not center on the fact that the God of all creation died for you, you got the wrong definition. The definition of love, the very centerpiece of love, before Hallmark wrote a card, it was Jesus dying on the cross. That is the definition of love. And he says to us, this is the picture of love, that you would lay down your life for another, that you would give up your life. Now think about it. Think about the contrast. Cain selfishly took a life. Jesus, out of love, gave his own life. You see the difference. You see the contrast. You see, the, most, uh, the highest possession that I have is my life. And the extreme example of love is to give up that possession for someone else. That's the picture of love. That's the, that's the exalted definition of love. That we would lay down our life for another. Love in itself is self-sacrifice. It's perfectly manifested in God. And notice the word that he uses before we leave this, because I'm going to give you a more practical definition here in just a second. But notice what he says. By this we know love, that he laid down his life. You see those words, right? Voluntary, atonement, self-sacrifice. He chose to lay down his life for us. This is the picture of love. We are born in the definition of of Christ's love. Christ's love is not found in us. Or excuse me, love is not find or defined in us. We don't define love. Jesus does. Walter Kaiser, the theologian, writes it this way. He says, Christians, Christian love is not born from within the character of the individual, but originates in Christ's act. We don't have to make up the definition of love. It is Christ and his death for us. That's the definition. That's where love flows from. But here's the issue. Very few people will have to lay down their life for someone else. We don't expect that in any time in the near future, because of our Christian conviction, you're going to have to run out and die for each other. We, that doesn't happen on a normal basis. On a regular basis, people certainly sacrifice themselves for others. We see this in, in those who volunteer for military. We see this in, 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 the, in the Christian persecuted world where one will step up and, and speak of Christ and lose their life on behalf of the others who are, who are afraid. And, and so we know this happens. But in a normal day, I'm guessing tomorrow, Monday morning, you're not going to be asked to lay down your life for someone else. That's usually not the normal actions of the believer. So what John does is he starts with the extreme example, the definition of Jesus. And then in the very next verse, he brings it down to Monday. 
He brings it down to normal life. Notice what he says. Look at the very next verse. He says these words in verse 17. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brothers in need, yet closes his heart against them, how does the love of God abide in him? See what he did? He went for the extreme example. We may have to lay down our life. We may have to give up ourselves. But really and truly, the Christian life is seen in every day helping someone else. Really and truly, it's not about laying down your life, though some will be called to do that. But really and truly, the everyday love of God is seen in our everyday actions of caring for other people. Now, here's where the rubber hits the road. In the Christian faith, we are really good at saying we love people. We're not always good at actually getting involved in people's lives. We're not always good at actually taking on the burden of someone else. We're, we're really good at saying we love people, we're praying for people, we give offerings to help people, but we don't always carve out time in our Monday through Friday schedule to actually let people's problems invade our life. We don't actually get uncomfortable with helping other people. And John says, here's a picture of Christian love. You will let other people interrupt your life. You will care for them. You will have the means to help them. And you will see, notice the word there. He says, if you see someone in need, that's not a glance. That's an intentional stare. That's intentionally getting involved in other people's lives. And you will help them along the way. C.S. Lewis puts it this way. He says, care, loving everybody in general may be an excuse for loving nobody in particular. What a powerful quote. We are really good at saying, I'll pray for you. I love you. Oh, man, that we're praying for you. We're not so good at saying, you know what? I'll cancel my Tuesday. I'll rearrange my Thursday. You know what? We've been saving up for that vacation, but this person needs that finances more. You know what? We'll make a little extra and deliver it over to them. I'll help you through your drug addiction. I'll meet you on Saturday so you can confess your sin and work through your problem. I'll come to your house in the middle of the night and pray with you. I'm going to get involved in your life because I love you. See, we're not always good at that. And John says, this is the picture of love. The picture of love is that we see someone in need and we help them. We look at them and we go after them. We find a way to invade their life. Every day, I may not die for someone else, but every day I can help someone. I can be a part of loving other people. How does God, look at the claim that he makes there. How does God's love abide in him, listen, one writer put it this way. He said, there is no Christian that's a miser. You cannot be a Scrooge and be a Christian. They do not compart together. They do not fit together. When we experience the lavish love of Jesus Christ, that lavish love is to overflow into every part of our life. And so when we experience what Christ has done for us in his great riches, he forgives us of our sins. We are to give whatever we have in order to help others, to share the love of God. Notice verse 18 as we close. Listen, though, he just gets straight to the point. Little children, that's his words of love. Let us not love in word or talk, but in deed or truth. Barclay put it this way in his writing. He said, fine words will never replace fine deeds. You can say all the kind things you want, but if I'm hungry, I need some food. You can say all the wonderful things about me, but if I'm cold, I need a jacket. You can say that you're going to pray for me all day long, and that's good, and that's wonderful, but if I need my car jumped off, you've got to come jump it off. We need help. We need physical displays of good 
deeds. You might say you'll help with that drug addiction. You might say you'll help with that brother in Christ who wants to grow in the Lord, but you got to carve out time to meet and read the Word. you got to carve out time to help them. you got to make it a point to be, allow them to be a part of your life. First uh, Corinthians 13, verse 1, the love chapter tells me this, that if I speak with words of angels, but I do not love, it's just a gong and a clang. It means nothing. We are to work, we are to move. Aren't you glad, brothers and sisters, that God didn't see our sin and say, I love you, and then didn't do anything? Aren't you glad he didn't look down from heaven and go, well, I'll pray for you? He moved, he acted, he rolled up his sleeves, and he got involved. This is the picture of Christian love, that we actually care for one another. James, the half-brother of Jesus, would write it this way, if a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you say to them, go in peace and be warm and filled without giving them things they need for their body, what good is that? So also faith itself, it does not have works, is dead. Listen, I'm all for you praying for me, but when I'm hungry, I could use a sandwich. This is the picture of Christian love. Let me ask you a question and we'll close this way. Let's take the test. How is your Christian love? Is it a conviction that you know that Christ died for you and you've been transformed by the gospel? Have you experienced the love of Jesus? Has he changed your heart and forgiven you your sins? Has he overflowed you with the emotions of heaven? Have you been changed by the blood of Christ? Have you met the love of God? Because if you say yes to that question, then my next two questions are very clear. Is it seen in your conviction and do the customs of your life display it? Are you a person that by default loves people? Are you a person that by default cares about people? And are you a person that makes time to share the love of God with people? This is the test of the believer. Would you bow your heads with me? Father, we pray this morning that we would be people who take up the call of love. John is very clear with us this morning. He's very adamant that love looks like Jesus and not like Cain. That those who walk into the spiritual world realize that in the physical world, self-preservation is the priority. In the spiritual world, self-sacrifice is to be our priority. God, help us be people who sacrifice. Lord, I pray this morning, if there's one watching online or sitting in this room and they've not experienced your love, they've not been overwhelmed by the love of Jesus, the love that forgives sins, the love that died for them, the love that carries their wickedness away and gives them righteousness, the love that invites them to be a son or daughter of the King. If they've never come to Christ, they've never been saved, they're not sure if, if God would carry them into heaven when they die. They don't know if they've, if they've connected with the love of Christ. Then, Lord, I pray today that by the power of Your Spirit and the truth of Your Word, You would call them to salvation and they would repent of their sins and turn to Jesus. Brothers and sisters, hear me now. The only way to experience the love of God is to come to Jesus. The Bible says in Romans chapter 10, verse 9 and 10, if you confess with your mouth and believe in your heart that Jesus Christ came and died and was buried according to the Scriptures and rose from the grave, then you can be saved. Romans 10, 13 says, For whosoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. John three sixteen. For God so loved the world that He gave His Son that whoever believes in Him will not die but have everlasting life. God loves you and Jesus is the proof. Oh, that you would come to Jesus today. Maybe you're here this morning and you're a believer in Christ. Let me ask you, how is your love life? 
Are you loving people like you're supposed to? Can you see it in the way you love the church? Are you committed to the body of Christ? Can you see it in the way you love your family, in the way you love others? Can you see it in the way that when you come up against something that's different than you, a person that's not like you, that, that behaves differently, is hate your automatic default? Or is it love? Love should be our custom. Love should be our action. Let me ask you one final question and then I'll pray. Can you survey your life this past week, this past month? Can you see evidence where you actually got involved and loved people? Where you rolled up your sleeve and you made time to help them. You saw them in need and you met their need. Brother or sister, the call of Christ is to act. Let us not just have words and talk, but deeds. Lord Jesus, we're thankful that you didn't just have words and talk, but that you moved. That you came from heaven to save us, that you laid down your life for us. We're thankful, Lord, that love is the calling card of heaven. We're thankful, Father, that you love us even in spite of all of our sin and all of our brokenness. Father, we pray that we would be people who would not just stare at Christ and admire him, but copy him. Live like him. That we wouldn't just be people of fine words, but we'd be people of fine deeds. Oh God, help us to love. Lord, help us, especially in a world that is constantly trying to rip people apart. We are constantly told that we are to be in a category or this category, that category. And, and if we're in one side, we are to hate the other side. Lord, help us not to live like that. That is not of the kingdom. The kingdom is love. In just a moment, I'm going to say amen. We're going to stand and sing a song. If you want to come this morning and pray, this altar is open. I invite you to come and pray. Maybe there's somebody you need to show love to. Maybe you just want to pray and ask the Lord to stir your heart again for loving people. If you'd like me to pray for you, I'll be glad to do that. I'll be standing here and I'll be blessed to pray with you. Maybe you want to come this morning and give your life to Christ. Maybe you want to come and say, you know what, I need to be a part of the church. I need to be committed to the body of Christ. I need to show that I love the church. And you want to come this morning declaring you'd like to join our membership. Then come on. We want you to walk with God and experience his love. Father, bless our time now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.